This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. But first, let's Thanks focus for on the our Jazz story Jewel podcast today on the pod. Residents the lost of homes and missing loved ones. The death toll continues to grow in Maui. We'll have the latest. And why does the BC government's own modeling show its environmental plan will dampen economic growth into and set BC prosperity back more than a decade? And from the Sugar Hill Gang to Maestro Fresh West to Jay-Z to Drake, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. That's all next on the Jazz Jewel Hall Show podcast. colored water, trampolines and children's scooters mangled by the extreme heat. Now, every building uh, was flattened, uh, flattened to debris on Front Street, the heart of the Maui community, and, of course, the economic hub of the island. The roosters, uh, well known to roam Hawaii streets, meandered through the ashes, we're told, of what was left, including an eerie traffic jam of the charred remains of dozens of cars that didn't make it out of the inferno. T- inferno. Take a listen. Hundreds of thousands of Southern Californians visit this one area of Lahaina. It is known for its shops, its wonderful restaurants, but everybody knows Front Street is always bogged down. It barely moves. And this video that I shot as I walked into the town, you can see all these cars stacked up and burned. And you know what happened. It's very clear. They couldn't get out of town fast enough. The flames overcame them. They got out of their cars. They may be the people that had to be rescued within the water because they jumped out, jumped over the wall into the ocean, which was the only safe place to be at that time. There's not even part of the structures left. It's just, they're just gone. It's erased. It's just... It's like a, like an area was bombed or something, like a war zone. I was the last one off the dock when the firestorm came through the banyan tree and took everything with it. And I just ran out to the beach and I ran south and I just helped everybody I could along the way. Well, joining us now is Brad Dizolne, a Vancouver resident president, uh, presently in Maui. Brad, thank you for joining us uh, today. Hey, Jazz. How are you today? I'm doing well, my friend. Where are you right now? I'm uh, I'm in Kihei, south south of Lahaina. South of Lahaina. Uh, what are you hearing today? Well, you know, it's it's fairly quiet at this end of the island. Um, uh, you know, there the news that I'm hearing is really that the the death toll is going to go up pretty mm-hmm. dramatically here. Mm-hmm. Over the next couple of days, they uh, FEMA got in uh, yesterday, last night, and they were going to be going in with their um, uh, search teams today. Uh, I did hear that they're allowing residents back into the area, but with a pretty stark warning of what they're going to see. Um, uh, I don't believe that power has uh, been restored to those places north of Lahaina. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were on yesterday, I, you know, I was talking to you about um, Kanapali and Napili, mm-hmm. and I had not realized at the time that they lost power as well. Uh, so they lost power, they lost access to water. Um, there's no, there was no road in or out because the road around the north end of the island is too narrow for, for buses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, it sounds as though they have opened up the highway now uh, for limited access. 
uh, and they're starting to bus people out and, and those sorts of things. It, but it, you can feel the pulse of the islands. Just the, the pulse on the island is very sad. Mm. Uh, any sense of when uh, power will be restored for the for the entire island? I just saw a report uh, just before coming on air here. Um, they're talking days, weeks, and months. Wow. So it'll be, you know, I think the Lahaina itself, Lahaina proper is going to have to go through an entire rebuild of its all of its infrastructure, everything. Mm-hmm. So when he's talking months, I think he may be talking about that particular area. Um, but certainly days and weeks uh, in terms of restoring the surrounding areas. Hmm. Uh, when you when you speak to folks, um, you know, there's been talk that oh, there was not a proper um, notice, that usually there's a siren of some sort. Um, is there any, anger may not be the right word, are there questions in regards to whether or not the response was fast enough? And, and I know these fires can move very quickly sometimes. Yeah. Uh, is there been any, I know it's early days, any conversation about, you know, uh, could things have been done better? Could the response have been better initially to get people out faster? You know, I think there's always going to be those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's anything that could have been done. Uh, the How quickly this happened was really remarkable. Literally, people had minutes mm-hmm. notice. Um, the fire just came racing down the hill so quickly. I don't think anything could have possibly have been done any better. But obviously, you know, the officials are going to be looking at and looking at that. And I imagine when they rebuild, they'll be you know they'll be rebuilt to code. So you know they'll have fire suppressant and different materials and those sorts of things. But but I can't imagine that there's from everything that I've heard that there's anything they could have done any faster or better. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And in regards to uh, Canadians and other uh, nationalities leaving, are you seeing people packing up and going, or are people saying, "Look, you know what? I'm going to stay uh, because I'm not impacted. I'm fine here. And if, even if there is some inconvenience over the next week or two, I'll live with it." Uh, are you hearing anything of that sort? So I personally made the decision I'm going to head back to Vancouver uh, this weekend. Uh-huh. I wanted to give a couple of days for the airport to kind of adjust. Um, and I have heard some people say, look, I, I don't need to be here using resources that these folks are going to need. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's some of that going on. And, and having said that, um, anybody out there who, who wants to donate, and please do if you can, um, you can text Hawaii to seventy seventy seventy. So if you text Hawaii to seventy seventy seventy, you can make a contribution. And um, I'm gathering up things from my complex here right now to take up to the relief center uh, to try and drop off and help out any way we can. So um, you know, if you don't need to be here, don't be here. Uh, and using resources that the people on the island are really going to need. Mm-hmm. And just to confirm, and it's hard to have an absolute exact number, but generally what you're hearing is that the people that were impacted were local people who live there. I'm not saying that tourists aren't or people who were there part-time. It is mostly locals that have been impacted in regards to losing homes and, and, and having to deal with, with, the, with the significant impact on their lives. So Lahaina doesn't have an awful lot of hotel space in Lahaina properly, proper. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think that there would have been a great deal of um, 
uh, impact on tourists who were staying in Lahaina. Um, so, however, you know, the speed with which this happened and the fact that, as you said in your preamble, the cars were trapped on the road and couldn't get out. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know what the impact on tourists is going to, at the end of the day, be. Um, but I'm pretty sure that the, the loss of life is going to be a lot higher than the 55 they're counting right now. Yeah. You know, I, I have been hearing some comments, uh, not necessarily locally here in Vancouver, but others have said, look, I've planned for this trip for a long time. Uh, others have said, look, I've never been to Hawaii. It was a trip of a lifetime. I'm still going to go. Uh, and I try not, I'm not trying to have any moral judgment on this uh, stuff because people yeah. do, it's a beautiful place. And, uh, you know, uh, I was just there last year, loved it. Um, what advice would you give to people, uh, in regards to who do want to go and may have things booked in a few weeks or desire to go? What would you say to them? Well, you know, it's a tricky call. I know the, a lot of, I know the airlines have adjusted all their policies. Um, so they're, you know, they're providing for refunds and reschedules and those sorts of things. I know that that's going on. I know they've been flying over some bigger jets to get people off the island. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suspect that those destinations, Nepali and um, Kanapali, uh, are probably going to be pretty resistant to bringing people in. So, you know, I imagine you'd want to double check on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're down here at the south end of the island or uh, on the eastern side of the island, you can be here. Um, but I think you really need to be sensitive to what the locals are going through mm-hmm. and um, and just really be sensitive because they're going to be hurting for some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, you, if you're planning to go up north, like to Nepali or Kanapali, up in that direction, uh, I'd reschedule. You're, you're just not going to – the services are just not going to be there. They don't have internet. They don't even have internet or cell phone coverage up there now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I know you so said, yeah, and you're leaving uh, tomorrow. You said, uh, uh, how often prior to all of this, uh, how much time did you spend in, in Hawaii? Uh, I've been here about in the last two years, I've been here about eight months. I tend to come over once or twice a year for anywhere from a month to two or three months. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I consider myself a part-time resident here. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can see why it is a beautiful place, uh, physically beautiful and the people are wonderful there as well. Thank you so much for your time, Brad. Safe travels back to Vancouver as well. Thank you very much. And again, just one more time, Jazz, if I can yeah. text Hawaii to seventy seventy seventy, and even just a few bucks would make a difference. These folks are really going to need it badly. Brad, thank you. Thanks, Jazz. Uh, joining us now is Jerry Mir Judson, our contributor, and I know we're going to talk about uh, heat waves and mm-hmm. how to protect yourself, but I'm just curious, so before we begin, do you have a, a, a favorite hip-hop artist? I do, easily. Do? I know I don't look like uh, someone that's super into hip-hop, but no, for sure. Uh, Dr. Dre, easily. Dr. Dre. Absolutely, yeah. 2001 is just like one of my favorite albums of all time ever, uh-huh. and uh, in university, we used to roll around in my friend's Oldsmobile with a souped-up stereo <laughs> and just blast 2001, so... Dr. Dre. <laughs> well, he's he's certainly one of the pioneers. I mean, he, he was part of the um, uh, the performance at the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Yes. Right? Oh, God, what a good performance that Ex- was. Exactly. Well, we'll so talk good. a little bit more yes. about uh, Dr. Dre and 
and uh, hip hop at five o'clock. But let's talk about uh, something very important, of course, which is mm-hmm. a heat wave that is coming mm-hmm. very soon here in British Columbia. Uh, during the break, you and I were just talking, and I was looking at some of the temperatures. I think, from what I can see, just on the graphics from uh, BC One, there uh, it looks like Kamloops is going to be the hot spot for the province. Yeah, we are. Thirty-eight degrees. Thirty-eight next. on Wednesday. Wow. Yeah, it's not going to be great. It's going to be in the immortal words of Nelly hot in here and I did ask Dr. Sarah Henderson she's the scientific director of environmental health for the BC CDC an important question if I don't have AC how do I keep my house and myself cool so keeping your house cool can be tricky first track the outdoor temperature and track the indoor temperature when the outdoor temperature starts getting hotter than the indoor temperature that's when you want to close the windows close the blinds if you have shutters or anything on the outside close those wrap the cooler indoor air inside and then at the end of the day the same thing once the outdoor temperatures start going down below the indoor temperatures open everything back up again and do your best to get in as much of that cooler outdoor air as That means opening all of the windows. What really helps is if you can put fans up against the windows so that they're drawing the cool air and pushing it into the room. In terms of keeping your body cool, staying well hydrated, your heart has to work pretty hard to keep your core temperature down in hot weather. And the more hydrated you are, the easier that's going to be for your body. So drink even when you're not feeling thirsty. And then, you know, using water to help keep your body cool, that can mean spraying yourself down with water, it can mean cool showers, sitting with your feet in some water. I really like to put a long sleeve cotton shirt in a bucket of water and then put it back on again and wear it because that really helps me for a long time. Uh, sitting in a kiddie pool if you've got one, all of those things to just help your body cope with those higher temperatures. People who are pregnant definitely want to be taking precautions in this weather. I mean, I think, you know, being pregnant is kind of uncomfortable anyway, mm-hmm. and sort of naturally more uncomfortable in the heat, but definitely a population who should be, be taking it easy and, and trying to stay cool. I feel like it is easier to succumb to heat-related illness than we think it is. You know, you are so right. We often call heat the silent killer because it really creeps up on people. Sometimes people don't even recognize that they are getting dangerously overheated. The early signs of getting overheated are heavy sweating, your heart rate going up, you notice you're breathing a little faster, you're getting a headache. Those are all signs that your body is starting to heat up too much and you should be taking immediate action to start cooling down. So that is how to identify heat-related illness like creeping up on you, but then how do you spot heat-related illness in someone else that might not be able to communicate that they're not feeling very well? So there's kind of two ends of the spectrum on people who might not be able to communicate. One is kids and the other is, you know, older or adults, people with cognitive impairment who who might not recognize that they're getting in trouble with the heat. Mm -hmm. For kids, uh, you really want to keep an eye on them, see how they're doing. If they're starting to look flushed, 
If you find they're starting to behave in a way that's really not normal for them, uh, get them cooled down right away. For the other end of the spectrum, it can be a little bit challenging. You know, if you're checking in on older people by phone or even in person, just keep an eye on how hot it is in their environment. We know that sustained indoor temperatures over 31 degrees can be quite risky. If you're talking to them on the phone or by FaceTime, ask them what the temperature is. And then ask questions that you know they should be able to answer pretty easily. And if they're struggling to answer those questions, that might indicate that um, you know, they are, their, their brain is starting to get uh, affected by the heat. And that, that means it's time to intervene. Thank you for for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, no worries, Jerry. Take care. Have a good day. Well, it's very important information. I find sometimes Mm -hmm. when I'm out too long outside, I I sometimes don't pay attention when I should be in regards to fluids and everything else. Oh, same. It happened to you too? (laughs) It happened to me, yeah. Just uh, when uh, we had this, like, the chorus flow to the Pride Parade, I was out for a really long time, and then you get that super dreadful headache, and you realize you've been sweating a lot and not drinking very much, and then I uh, had to go to the store and get myself a Pedialyte. And did you know that they also uh, sell Pedialyte freezies? What? Yeah, you can put, it's just a handy little freezy format. They have different flavors, and you get the box, you put it in the freezer, and then you can just pop a Pedialyte freezy, which is excellent in the heat i when highly did, recommend when did that starts I, I don't know it was i noticed it i think like within within the last several years at least but yeah we've really come full circle into admitting that dehydrated adults uh love some pedialyte pedialyte freezies mm-hmm. pedialyte wow. freezies are my favorite well i think uh, there's a few folks who probably should pick some up because uh it's gonna be a hot one next week right it's Vancouver, gonna be brutal in interior i mean it's like 38 in camelops <laughs> good <Yeah>. luck <laughs> Stay cool. Use the fans against the window at night. Exactly. Jerry, thank you. Thank you. One only has to watch uh, the, the TV news on any given week over the last six weeks or so to realize we have been in the midst of a record-breaking wildfire, wildfire season across the country. Uh, it's been uh, incredibly challenging for crews, uh, provincial crews uh, throughout Canada. We've had um, wildfire crews come in from South Africa, Mexico, United States, and New Zealand to help uh, many of our own crews here in this country. Well, our next guest said we should start looking at or at least considering a National Wildfire Fighting Force. Uh, Richard Cannings is a member of Parliament for South Okanagan, West Kootenay. Uh, Mr. Cannings, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for getting in touch. Yeah, so well, tell me, why do you think we need a federal force uh, when provincial governments across this country, particularly here in British Columbia, have had a long history of providing uh, wildfire, wildfire uh, resources and have the expertise and experience? Why do you think we need a, f- a federal force? Well, yeah, I don't want to take anything away from, uh, you know, BC Wildfire or any other mm-hmm. provincial force uh, that have been very active. And, you know, certainly BC Wildfire recognized one of the top professional wildfire fighting forces in the world, you know, because we have, unfortunately, a lot of reason to uh, have a force here and uh, work every summer uh, in, in a big way in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case all across Canada. Mm-hmm. And every year, conditions are different in different parts of the country. And like you say, this has been a record wildfire year. And all indications are that, uh, you know, there will be changes from year to year, but things will get hotter and drier 
uh, as the years go on. And over over those years, things will get worse, more intense. Mm-hmm. And as I say, this year we have, I've lost track of how many, but there's certainly over a thousand people from other parts of the world helping us fight our fires here in British Columbia. And I think uh, a well-trained uh, firefighting force in Canada would really uh, be beneficial to the country, beneficial to the the people who are concerned about fires at the interface between communities, uh, people who work in the forest. Everyone will benefit and will almost surely save money on top of that if that's a consideration. But I, I think that a force of, you know, say four or 500 people mm-hmm. divided into teams ready to deploy across the country even before the fires start. You know, we know where these fires are going to happen based on, on the weather forecasts, and we can have them in place to hit those fires early because that's the only way we can put them out. Uh, do other countries do this? I know we have uh, here in Canada, as we talked, we have a provincial wildfire service. Do other countries have uh, provincial or state forces plus a national force that you, that you know of? Uh, well, I think Australia is an example. You know, they have a federation like we do. They have a state uh, a forest uh, wildfire teams, but they also have a national wildfire team as things as you, as you may have heard, in Australia, they've had some very, very serious wildfire seasons in the last decade. Mm-hmm. And they decided that it would be really good for Australia to, to have a national wildfire force. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you worry that there might be duplication, though? There's a tendency sometimes when you have different levels of government, uh, you know, each wanting to actually put their mark on a particular issue, or, or in this case, you know, dealing with wildfires, that they're, uh, and, you know, we all want to have the best use of tax dollars. Do you not worry that perhaps there might be some duplication there? Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going into any detail in my proposal here, and I'm listening to experts. Uh, you know, I first heard this suggestion from uh, Mike Flanagan, who's a professor at Thompson Rivers University, one of our real wildfire experts in Canada, mm-hmm. and uh, he was the one I first heard this proposal from. Uh, you know, I think, as I say, we have all these teams of firefighters coming in every fire season into Canada, into British Columbia, and, you know, we can, I'm sure the, the chain of command is already worked out in these situations, but I think... For Canada to have a national wildfire fighting force would be a, a real benefit to the entire country. Beyond the boots on the ground, I'm just curious, sometimes the biggest cost is actually the, 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 the capital cost going towards equipment, particularly water bombers and that sort of thing. So when you say a national force, it's not just people, you're, you're talking equipment as well and potentially even water bombers and that sort of thing. Well, it is certainly the equipment would go along with it. And, you know, right now we have uh, the Canadian Interagency Firefighting Centre, I think it's called, in in Winnipeg, that manages, you know, tries to sort out, you know, where uh, equipment and and teams could deploy. That could be used somewhat. But you mentioned water bombers. That, you know, is you know that's another step above. And uh, I've also been calling for that we should look into having a squadron of water bombers available for Canadian firefighting. Mm-hmm. We make water bombers here in Canada. Uh, we haven't, there's the, you know, De Havilland Canada and now owned by Viking Air. Uh, they are making 
water bombers, I believe, in Alberta now. Uh, Europe, the European countries are lining up with many orders for these water bombers. Mm-hmm. We should, you know, look at, you know, a, a force of Canadian water bombers made in Canada that can be used to, to fight fires across the country. Yeah. We will still have, you know, the, the contract uh, companies that we use right now, you know, Airspray, Conair, Colson, you know, those would still be available for us and, and I'm sure still be used. But I think it would be, again, another advantage of having Canadian planes fighting Canadian fires uh, across the country. Mr. Cannings, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Have, have yourself a wonderful weekend. Well, you too. Thanks for giving me a call. Well, part of that conversation that we just had really applies to our next guest. Uh, Jonathan Wilkinson, of course, is the Minister of Energy and Natural Resources. The minister today, of course, uh, was in town announcing 400000 in new funding for a pilot project uh, with the International Association of Firefighters. The organization will train 25 instructors in Kamloops on teaching urban firefighters how to deal with wildfires that encroach on communities. Minister Wilkinson, thank you for joining us today. Not at all. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about this new fund. How would it work? Well, this uh, this new program comes, you know, kind of on top of a number of other commitments we've made around funding for equipment and funding for the training of, of different firefighters. But this is specifically uh, a program with the International Association of Firefighters, and it really relates to uh, communities that, that are kind of in that interface between the forests and, and communities we see increasingly um, fires that are actually threatening communities. And so this program is really about funding the International Association of Firefighters to um, do training of firefighters across the country um, to ensure that they are prepared to actually engage in that interface. So it's a bit different from what they do in their normal jobs, and it's about ensuring that we're making good use of of the great firefighters that exist in our, our communities already. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of your decision-making and government's decision-making has now evolved, never mind specific policies around, uh, around uh, climate, but just in regards to how government views all of its policies in the context of climate change? Well, I think it has evolved a lot. Um, and I think it's particularly involved, you know, there's lots of conversations that have been going on for a long time about how do we reduce carbon emissions. That's, that's all important and fair enough. But I think what has really evolved in the last couple of years um, is the reality that policies today actually have to be rethought and reframed in a manner that actually ensures that we can adapt to the impacts of climate change that we are seeing all around us in the forest fires and floods that are happening, the extreme weather events that seem to be occurring more and more and more. So it is affecting pretty much everything that we do. You've got to look at it through a different lens and ensure that you're prepared. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's been some talk uh, of a national firefighting service that can augment provincial firefighting services. Uh, you know, here in British Columbia, we have a pretty robust system because we've had to deal with uh, forest fires for many, many decades, uh, and and even more so now. Uh, over the last four years, they've been challenged significantly. Has there been any talk about a national firefighting service that can help augment some of the stuff the provinces do? Well, there's certainly been discussion about that. Um, you want to make sure if you're thinking about creating new organizations that they are actually going to make a significant contribution. So, you know, we already have pro- provinces and territories are primarily responsible. They're the front line and they have most of the resources. 
And there is an organization that's based in Winnipeg that is all about sort of the, the sharing of resources across provinces and territories to try to ensure that we are utilizing resources effectively. The federal government obviously participates in that both because we have firefighters in Parks Canada, but also because increasingly the Canadian Armed Forces um, are deployed to help with, uh, with many of these issues. So the federal government is already actively involved. There is a coordinating mechanism that exists. We are looking at other options and other models um, to see if they could add something on a go-forward basis that we don't have today. But I would say that there is actually a lot of collaboration and coordination between the federal government and the province and territories. And the federal government obviously also has agreements with many other countries who have been very helpful to Canada um, during this terrible period of time um, to ensure that we can facilitate um, firefighters from other countries coming and helping us here uh, when we need it. And of course, sending Canadians to help uh, other countries when they need it. Uh, I just signed an agreement with the United States to help to make this more effective and speedier mm -hmm. to be able to actually leverage those resources. So I, I think there are a lot of things in place. We're looking at it, but but I, I want to make sure that we're not just adding more bureaucracy, that it's actually going to achieve something significant. Yeah, it's one of those things that sound good and would look good on paper, but you're right. Uh, you don't want uh, any wasted tax dollars, especially when the provinces are, are sort of leading the way in in that yeah. regards. Uh, let's touch on something you, you've you uh, announced uh, and talked about uh, last week, but I think it's really important. Uh, and that is, of course, uh, the federal government is saying that basically provinces need, need to move towards a sort of a non-emitting power grids to access clean energy investment tax credits. There, of course, has been some pushback by Alberta and Saskatchewan saying, look, the 2035 target doesn't work. It's not realistic uh, that we should be aiming for 2050, which they say is much more realistic. What do you say to that argument? Well, I say, uh, I think it, it starts by saying different provinces have different challenges. And, and of course, the challenges for places like Alberta and Saskatchewan, which still utilize a lot of uh, coal and natural gas, are different than for, you know, British Columbia or Quebec, where there is uh, an abundance of, of hydropower. So I, I, I certainly recognize the challenges that some provinces face. But I would say that Getting to a clean grid is critically important for us to achieve our climate goals. I mean, it's not just about electricity. It's, a, it's a, in terms of cleaning up the grid. It's also about we need more electricity to eliminate emissions from transportation. We need more electricity to eliminate emissions from buildings. Um, and it's also the case that we can't actually seize the economic opportunities, and they're huge opportunities, unless we actually have clean power to flow to the industrial facilities that want to produce products with virtually zero carbon. So... I say we need to actually work together. Um, there is no disagreement, I think, with Alberta on the end goal. We both agree we need to get to a clean grid. We both agree that it needs to be affordable for consumers and it needs to be reliable. But at the end of the day, um, we need to move expeditiously. And, uh, and my offer to both of those provinces and to all provinces and territories is let's sit down and figure out how we do that as fast as we possibly can. Uh, and our guest here, of course, is Jonathan Wilkinson, the Minister of Energy and Natural Resources. Now, Minister, the carbon tax is going up and continues to go up. Putting a price on carbon, many have said, is supposed to impact consumer behavior. But critics are saying it's not impacting consumer behavior as much as people wished it had. There's pushback as well in regards to the affordability challenges many British Columbians are presently facing. What do you say to people who think maybe you should put a break on raising carbon taxes at the pump year after year and slow down a bit? 
Well, I say um, a couple of things. I mean, the first is the price on pollution, and it is pollution, and you're a pricing pollution, um, is is uh, about actually enabling folks and, and pricing in the cost associated with with that pollution is about in, encouraging behavior to choose lower carbon alternatives. Um, and yes, affordability is important. That's why the federal price on pollution, we have a rebate that, you know, eight or 10 folks who pay the price actually get more money back than they pay. Um, it's why the industrial price is structured in a way to shield um, companies from competitiveness impact. So they pay on a certain portion of their emissions, but they actually have to strive to be best in class. And so we do think about competitiveness. We do think about affordability. But at the end of the day, I mean, look at what's happening in the climate around us. We actually have to have a thoughtful and concrete climate plan. And to be honest with you, it does drive behavior. I mean, this is the reason why we're seeing uptakes of electric vehicles and stuff is increasingly it's cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to run an electric vehicle because the cost of the electricity is far lower than the cost of gas that embeds the carbon price. So I think for those who are concerned about climate change, it is the most efficient way to address emissions, but it's not the only tool that the federal government is using. Mm-hmm. And it is a leader, but there are many countries around the world that use the price on pollution. Do you, what do you say to those who say, look, this is just an opportunity by the Liberal government to kill the oil and gas industry? That this is, a, it shouldn't be this way, but this is where we're headed just because it's, it's difficult to do business here because of not just the carbon tax, but other taxes as well and the general overarching a philosophy of this government when it comes to legislation, that this is going to kill the oil and gas industry. What do you say to that argument? Well, I, I say I work with the oil and gas industry pretty much each and every day. Um, I say we, we are not endeavoring to kill the oil and gas industry. What we are endeavoring to do, though, is reduce demand for oil and gas that is used in combustion applications where you're creating carbon pollution, Um, and particularly those applications where you cannot capture and sequester the carbon. And so, you know, we need to do that. Every country around the world needs to do that if we're actually going to have a habitable planet for our kids. There will continue to be a role for the oil and gas industry, even in a net zero world. Lots of the applications that exist today, lubricants, asphalt, you know, carbon graphite, um, I mean, petrochemicals, a whole range of those things, and in the case of natural gas, hydrogen, um, those are all things that don't require combustion or can be done in a manner that are very, very low emission. So there is a continuing future for the oil and gas space, but it is a, 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 it is a, a, a sector that, you know, that the amount of oil that we use, the amount of gas that we use is going to inevitably have to decline or we are not going to address the climate issue and our children are going to face a very, very challenging uh, circumstance indeed. But are we at that point in your mind where the rubber does hit the road, where you are seeing serious impacts on pricing affordability for people, though? I mean, I, I hear it on this show, and one could argue, well, people are going to call. It's the nature of talk shows. But, uh, you know, and I've said from day one, I'm in favor of putting a price on carbon. But my concern is that it, we, we get to the point where we make it unaffordable for many families, that there is inevitably a pushback at the ballot box, saying these liberals have gone too fast and too far. And I'm, I'm with a Vancouver size mortgage. I got a lot on my plate as a consumer. And I, I just think you guys need to slow down. I can't afford it anymore. Do you worry about any backlash towards you and your government because of the speed at which you're moving? Well, I think we always, we, we obviously have to be concerned about affordability. Um, that is something obviously that's important for each and every Canadian family. Um, 
And, you know, with respect to the price on pollution in particular, that's the reason why we structured it in a manner where all of the money is rebated. And it's actually rebated in a way that actually benefits people in more modest incomes versus those who have, you know, a 6,000 square foot house. Um, and so, as I say before, eight out of 10 Canadian families actually get more money back. So that is not an affordability challenge. I recognize that inflation has has really squeezed families for sure, and that's you know why we brought forward the grocery rebate and a bunch of those other other policies to try to actually help with some of those affordability issues. I think for those on with mortgages, absolutely higher interest rates are squeezing people. We need to be thoughtful about that. We need to continue to work to try to address the housing pressures that are creating um, the challenges. We need to hopefully start to see an easing of interest rates as inflation you know becomes more and more under control. But yes, we have to be worried about affordability. But let's not let's not conflate fighting climate change with creating affordability challenges. We have to do both. And to be honest with you, if we don't address the climate issue, as I say, um, you know, the future for our kids is a bleak, bleak future. Mm-hmm. Well, the, you know, you raise a very good point. I mean, we spent a lot of time covering uh, the issue of wildfires uh, here in BC, and of course. Uh, in Maui just yesterday, we covered it uh, today as well. So uh, you're absolutely right. The repercussions are, are, are around us, that is for sure. Minister, thank you so much for your time today. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. All right, you too. Just joining us, we did speak to Jonathan Wilkinson, the Minister of Energy and Natural Resources. We talked a little bit about wildfires and whether or not we need a national wildfire uh, force uh, to help and augment um, those provincial forces uh, that uh, deal with the frontline work every every summer and increasingly starting earlier and earlier. And we also talked quite a bit about carbon tax and well, I, and I and I think putting a, a price on carbon is still the right thing to do. But I do worry that every year carbon taxes go up. And when we're in the midst of affordability challenges, particularly with the high inflation that we've had, uh, that somewhere along the way, British Columbians are going to say that's enough, particularly here in, particularly here in Vancouver, uh, because it is a challenge and we're expecting uh, prices to go up again in the fall um, already. And so there have been reports out uh, in regards to that. But let's talk a little bit about our provincial plan as well. Recently, the Business Council of BC put out um, a report basically saying that government's own modelling shows that its clean BC plan will dampen economic growth and set BC's prosperity back at this more than a decade. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this report is Ken Peacock, Chief Economist and Senior Vice President at the Business Council of British Columbia. Ken, thank you for joining us. Uh, you're welcome, and thanks for having me on, Jeff. Yeah, lots to talk about, uh, talk about today on a, on a sunny Friday, but uh, <laughs> all these things have just caught my attention today. Uh, walk me through uh, how BCBC came to this uh, conclusion in regards to our own policies, our own clean BC po- policies uh, may potentially hold prosperity back for our province. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Jazz. It, it'll take me it'll take me a minute here or so uh, to do so, but, but essentially we were, you know, we entered inter engage and interact with the the provincial government in policy development and they've got a couple consultations uh, papers out mm-hmm. uh, as they look to move to what's called an output based pricing system but that's not really the, the the theme here so what happened is that prompted us to go onto their website uh and the ministry of environment's website and look a little more closely read those reports more closely and then in the clean bc report which charts out the province's path to reduce carbon emissions 40% below 2007 levels by 2030 is one target. Um, 
And buried in, in that report is some mention to their modeling results, which is contained in an Excel spreadsheet and posted on their website. So we jumped on to, into that and looked at their modeling results and, and just briefly what, what they do to try and model the impact of all these different uh, carbon pricing and regulatory uh, mechanisms that are going to put, put in place. They run the model out to 2030 and say, okay, this is the scenario where we don't have these additional uh, policies in place. And then they rerun the model uh, saying we put these policies in place. Did we achieve our GHG reduction targets? And along the way, what happened to the economy? And it turns out when you do those two scenarios uh, with the clean BC expanded policy framework in place, which includes carbon tax going up to $170 by 2030, that the economy in BC will be $28 billion smaller than it otherwise would be. That's a lot of activity. That's a lot of output. That means lower income and wages. We can get about uh, into that more in a moment. But that's the top line result, Jazz, is uh, the, the clean BC policies will suppress growth Instead of growing by 20% over the decade, BC's economy will only grow by 10%, and that shaves $28 billion off the total size of the economy. And what would you say to those in government that said, look, we are in the midst of climate challenges here. You see wildfires in British Columbia. We just see the, the, the carnage that we're seeing in Maui. You've seen it across uh, Europe, um, Australia, that we have to make structural changes on how we do things. And there may be short-term pain. In this case, you know, the economy being $28 billion smaller in 2033 um, than what it what it, sh- it should be and could be, that we have to make those structural changes. What do you say to that argument? That is part of the pain that we're going to have to go through short-term to really resize the economy and start moving in a much more cleaner, greener way towards a, towards a better future. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're completely in alignment with that. Um mm-hmm. And that does need to happen. I think there's a couple questions around pace, aggressiveness of, of targets, uh, the starting point in British Columbia. Uh, few people really recognize and embrace the reality that because BC's electric system is already 98% clean, it's mostly hydro, uh, there's very few what let's just call them low-hanging fruit opportunities to, you know, fuel switch and reduce carbon emissions in that way. So it's much more difficult uh, for BC to meet these these targets and the reductions in greenhouse gases. So I, I would note those few items uh, first off. But I think, Jazz, my bigger concern here mm-hmm. is that I don't think this is being conveyed uh, and I don't think the public is aware of this. The greenhouse gas targets and some of the initiatives that are going to be done to meet those targets are being well-documented and conveyed in the public-facing documents that the government produces, but it really is not evident and apparent in that literature that there's very, very significant negative implications for the economy. Um, and I did, just, just before I stop here, I just want to, mm-hmm. this is a bit on economists, Jazz. I just want to make it clear that economists like to talk about GDP, and it's, it's kind of, you know, $250, $260 billion of provincial economy uh, GDP is, is the number. It's, it's just amorphous, hard to wrap your head around. Uh, it's the final value uh, of all goods and services sold in D.C. That's one way to count GDP. Mm-hmm. But the other way that provides what I think a bit more insight is on the income side. GDP is just income. 
the sum total of all wages and salaries earned in the economy, self-employment income, uh, some rent, and then some profits from businesses and a little bit of taxes, that also equals GDP. So just to be clear, when we're saying that we're going to shave $28 billion off the provincial economy, that's $28 billion in income. Uh, and if you share it out, you know, that, that's going to be about $20 billion less in wages because wages and, and the self-employment income account for about two-thirds of GDP. Mm-hmm. So the, rea- the hard reality is the plan means fewer jobs, lower income, and a lower level of prosperity in British Columbia. Uh, and, and that hasn't been conveyed, and I, I can understand why the government want, doesn't want to convey that. But at the end of the day, it's 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 almost like it's – never mind the decrease. It's a province that's going to be stagnant at the end of the day. It's not the, – the, the aspiration may not be there. More importantly, the opportunities may not be there. It's not like society just stop. It is it's slow down. And you can't really point at one little thing, but it, this is something that's going to continue. And it, it does, at the end of the day, really take away from all the opportunities there, that would be there for, for the next generation in regards to jobs and opportunities and attracting business at the end of the day. Yeah, no, this, this, this is such a good point. Uh, first of all, I'm just speaking to 2030. The, the implications, the dampening of economic growth, of course, continue past 2030. And as far as I can tell, and I, I really completely agree with your comment about opportunities, because as far as I can tell, it, it's not the older people. It's not, it's not me, uh, you know, well advanced in our careers. It's the younger generation. And you are spot on with growth comes churn, opportunities, expansion in new uh, sectors. When you dampen growth down. Now, I'm just going to throw out a number here. Mm-hmm. You know, BC's economy over the last two decades has grown at an average of 2.5% a year. And that does create new opportunities, new businesses, expansion, job growth, income growth, etc. Under this plan, the government's own modeling indicates that between 2025 and 2030, economic growth will slow to 0.4%. Slowest in the provincial history by, by a long way. I actually didn't think it was possible uh, to get down to that level of growth. So that, that's very concerning. And when you start to parse that out uh, and think about that, while the population is growing, we are going to have a, a, a basically a stagnant pie or a very, very slow-growing pie to divide up across a much larger population. So it just means fewer resources for government, lower incomes for people, uh, right across the board. Yeah. Ken, uh, thank you so much. I enjoyed reading the report, and we'll have you on again because it is a very important issue. Thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You're welcome. Thanks, Jeff. When did hip-hop start? The answer, if you can believe, is August 11th, 1973, so 50 years ago today. That was the date a young man named Clive Campbell, who was then known as DJ Cool Herc in the Bronx, DJed a back-to-school party for his younger sister in the community room of the apartment building uh, they lived at. Now, Campbell, who was born and spent his early years in Jamaica before his family moved to the Bronx, was still a teen himself at the at the time. He was just 18 years old. So when he began extending 
blending the musical breaks of the records he was playing to create a different kind of dancing opportunity, he started speaking over the beat, reminiscent of the toasting style heard uh, in his native Jamaica. Now, it wasn't long before his style could be heard all over New York City, and among those who started to hear about it were some young men across the river in Englewood, New Jersey, who started making up rhymes to go along with the beats. In 1979, they auditioned as rappers for Sylvia Robinson, who was a singer-turned-music producer, who co-founded Sugar Hill Records. Now, as the Sugar Hill gang, they put out Rapper's Delight. Take a listen. And they introduced the country to a record that would reach as high as 36 on Billboard's Top 100 chart. I said a hip hop, a hip it, a hip it, a hip hip hop, you don't stop the rockin' to the bang bang boogie, say up jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to be. Now... Now, since then, hip-hop has exploded across the world. It's a true force globally impacting the music industry itself, arts, culture, politics, and fashion. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the impact of 50 years of hip-hop is DJ Alibaba. He's a DJ host, a radio personality, and owner-operator of Alibaba Entertainment. DJ Alibaba, thank you for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's a big day. I guess I should start the interview with, how should, what should I call you? Is it just DJ Alibaba, or do you prefer another name? Oh, man. People call me all kind of things. They call me DJ. They call me Ali. They call me Baba. They call me B. But ah, Ali is cool, man. Just call me. <laughs> all right. We'll go with Ali. There we go. Well, it's a very important day today, um, the yes. 50th anniversary of hip-hop. What's, it, what's a day like today mean for you? Uh, you know what? It's um, it's a super emotional day for me because uh, I would not be who I am today without hip hop and the influence it's had in my life. Uh, a kid coming from Vallejo, California, to Winnipeg, to Vancouver, doing um, you know boat cruises, socials, uh, the radio, uh, television programs, music makers in Winnipeg. Um, it's it's really been a big part of my life and the influences from artists uh, are, you know, the, I can't even put it into words that um, the music, and the lyrics and things that, you know, hip hop is um, multifaceted. Mm-hmm. So it touches on so many different things, so many different emotions and um, from party emotions to social justice issues to, um, you know, friends and family. Uh, there's there's just a, a whole array of um, um, a cultural influence that hip hop has. But for me personally, it's it's really in my DNA. Mm-hmm. Now it was uh, August eleventh, nineteen seventy three. Uh, a young DJ named uh, DJ Cool Herc. Uh, uh, real name was Clive Campbell. I guess he was. He was uh, DJing a back-to-school party for his younger sister, uh, and uh, there was a significant amount of Jamaican influence. I think was a, his background was uh, his family uh, spent a lot of early the early years in Jamaica, and that was part of the influence. But many have said it started on that day, and then of course moved on uh-huh. throughout New York City uh, to New Jersey, going back to Sugar Hill Records. All of that. How do you think uh, hip hop has evolved in your mind? Well, um, it is, it went from a fad. Well, first, before I even say that, I also want to send a shout out to Cindy Campbell, who was the first lady of hip hop. She, she promoted the parties for us. So we've got to send a big shout out to the females too, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has evolved from, you know, just 
beatboxing and rapping on the streets and just rapping over uh, records to uh, it influenced technology. And today, it you cannot pretty much turn on the TV without seeing a an ad advertisement that is influenced by hip hop. If you listen to the music, you listen to the style, and the language of today has been influenced by hip hop as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it has evolved from a fad, you know, when people used to call it rap crap and this will never last, it's just a gimmick and it's just a fad, to worldwide influence. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it, it, there are no words that you can really say that uh, put it in, you know, that you can really describe uh, to say that, hey, you know, like, um, you know, it started here and went to there. We just don't have enough time to really speak on all of the influences hip hop has had uh, in the, in the world today. Mm-hmm. Does it struggle still for um, uh, credibility within the mu- uh, music industry when you think of awards uh, like the Grammys and many others? Does it struggle for credibility, or at least uh, being at the same level of, let's say, traditional rock? Yes, it does, and um, really. Some people won't call it out, but being a black American, American Canadian, I will say <laughs> um, it is a racial thing. And, it, it, you know, some people may not want to touch on it, but at the end of the day, it is a racial thing. And it's because uh, it started in, with black folks and rap and, you know, it's evolved to everyone now. So, you know, white, Hispanic, uh, you know, Latinos, like, you know, uh, Indian, South Asian. Asians, even, you know, like all over the world, whether you're French, Chinese, Japanese, it doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's really multicultural, but it still has that stigma of black music. And as we know, um, you know, I, I, as a DJ coming up, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've been told uh, back in the day, not as much now, and I mean, not, not now, today. But back in the day, it was, we don't play black music. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that was the attitude of the record execs, um, the media, the television, radio stations. They would not play black music. And even in Vancouver, you know, people didn't want to be known as a black radio station. If you play some, you know, rap music, all of a sudden you're labeled as a black radio station. Mm -hmm. And... You know, one thing I always tell people, and, you know, which runs pretty deep, because I played the clarinet and piano as a young child. Mm-hmm. And I say, you know what? Um, technically, all music is black music. Because if you ever seen sheet music, it's a white piece of paper with black notes on it. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, all music is black music. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the social racial issue side of it um, really is what has prevented it from flourishing on the 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 main stages when it comes to Grammys and and big awards and things like that um, and acknowledgement and the Junos same thing there are artists who had to boycott Salt and Pepper boycott you know like um, the Rascals boycott you know like there's there's certain artists that have to take a stand to say hey we are not going to accept this award until you accept the music mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so you want us to give us an award but you won't let us perform. And that's, you know, that's kind of a, uh, you know, it's just, it's just been that way throughout history, but it's gotten a lot better. 
Now, Ali, uh, some would argue that hip-hop of today doesn't resonate as deep or doesn't speak to broader social issues as hip-hop once did. What do you say to that argument? Well, I can simplify that for you. Um, Mm -hmm. An artist like Kendrick Lamar resonated, and he resonates with with people because he speaks towards other people. Um, Today's artist is all about me, you know, and not all the artists, but Mm -hmm. it's about me. Look at me. Look what I got. I can do this. I can do that. And it, and I call it meitis. Mm-hmm. You know, it's me and I tis. You know, and you need to see a doctor about that. Whereas the <laughs> the rap music of the past spoke about people and others and the party. It wasn't about me. And they might throw a little something, I can rock a mic, you know, better than someone else, but it wasn't all focused on what, you know, I'm better than you and what I got and I got this and I got that and I'll, I'll bust a cap in you if you come at me and all this other stuff. And a lot of today's rap really is fictional rap. It's not reality rap, Hmm. you know, like a lot of rappers, like they'll go out and they'll rent cars or lease cars or whatever and lease a house or rent a house and rent this mansion and rent a stack of money and stuff. And that's not really yours. Mm-hmm. And back in the day, we wrapped, we wrapped our lives. Like, I didn't rap, but you know what I mean? Like, the, mm-hmm. the artists, they wrapped their lives, and we represented realness. And I think the realness and the reality has gotten away into uh, and kind of gotten away from the showmanship. And I kind of blame a bit of the labels and execs who want you to be, you know, yeah, say this a little bit more and say that a little bit more. Yeah, that sells. They promote negativity instead of positivity. Mm-hmm. And that's not, um, that's, not, uh, that's not real hip-hop. That's just not real hip-hop. But until some of the, um, you know, the older heads move up into positions of decision-making power, we have work to do. Do you think the 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 sort of the target hip hop has had directed towards for many years that it is sexist, it is misogynistic, uh, it does promote violence uh, too often? What do you say to that? We can do a better job. We can do a better job. That is uh, a lot of that is on the artists, um, but a lot of it is also on society. So if you look at the news, I mean, I remember back in the day we used to do current book reports. Every Monday in school, you'd read the newspaper, yeah. you pick out an article, and you do a book report or uh, you know a write-up on the article that you read, you know, and on a Monday, today, you can't even read the newspaper. I don't want my kids reading the newspaper. You can't read the newspaper. You can't watch the news because it's all doom and gloom. Hmm. It's all, you know, killings, bombings, uh, you know, it's all uh, aggression um, sexism, the t- today's movies and TV shows. So it's it's unfair to say that oh hip hop is, is this way. It's not just hip hop. You have to look at our whole society as a whole and say what direction is our society going in. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how it is. You know, when a school teacher can make more money on TikTok showing her breasts than she does teaching in school. And something's wrong with our society. That's backwards. Mm-hmm. She should get more money or he or she should be able to be paid uh, well for doing positive things and making an influence, a positive influence 
in the lives of children and people rather than making more money selling sex. Yeah. No, so, and that's not just rap. Now, when I think of Canadian rappers, uh, I'm, you know, I'm of a different mm-hmm. vintage. I think of Maestro Fresh West uh, having a huge impact, many yeah. others. Uh, my, my son is going to go to his first concert uh, in a few weeks to Drake. Um, yep. Are there, w- which uh, DJs or rappers, hip-hop artists, do you think have, have played a significant role for hip-hop in this country? Oh, for sure, Maestro Fresh West. He is the godfather of Canadian rap, and he's a good friend of mine, too. So, And I just give him a quick plug. Still winning. That's his new track. Listen to that. Um, but big shout-out to Maestro Fresh West, Cardinal Official. you got to give it up for him. Um, there's other guys, too, like, um, you know, Shaw Claire. There's, uh, there's so many other artists. Rascals, Van City's own Rascals. Mm-hmm. You know, and these are guys who never really promoted sexuality, guns, or violence. They promoted the party, the culture, and, um, you know, uh, social justice as well. Yeah. Uh, I just mentioned a few of them there. They're Canadian. Uh, Obviously, there's many others uh, from the United States, other parts of the world. Who's on your top five list of hip-hop artists of all time? Oh, that's a tough one. Wow, that's a tough one. I'm okay. Um, not in any specific order. Mm-hmm. Okay, Tupac. Yeah, um, I would have to say Tupac is number one on top. Yeah. Uh, my my sister taught a class on Tupac actually at San Francisco. Hmm. Uh, she wrote a um, a class for San Francisco State on Tupac. Um, Biggie. Yep. Um. Grandmaster Flash, got to give homage to the old school. Yep. Um, Love Buster Rhymes, just his lyrical flow is ridiculous. Um, And probably Eric B. and Rakim. Yeah. You know, there's, I mean, I can go so far. And then, you know, I mean, I've got that, I'm, I grew up in the street, so I've got that side of me as well. So, you know, I grew up in the street, so I got to send a shout out to E-40 and Too Short and all those guys. But people might say, oh, well, they, you know, promote sexuality of women and this and that. But, you know, I mean, it's the street too as well. Yeah. So. Well, th- that's a solid top five there for sure. And I know you could probably yeah. give me 25 and, and, but it's oh, spe- easy. it speaks to the <laughs> impact of hip hop, not just only on music, but art, culture, fashion, uh, the cultural zeitgeist. It has been one of the more defining moments and movements, certainly of my lifetime and many of our listeners' lifetime as well. So I really yeah. appreciate your time today, my friend, and it was, I thought it was important to, you. to focus on and really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much today for your time. Thank you so much for having me, and hey, long live hip-hop. This is the longest fad in the history of the world. <laughs> so much love going out to everybody, Thank, all right? All right, hey, have yourself all right. a good weekend. Thank you, my brother. You too, my brother. Thank you. Goodbye now. It's over. That's all. Thank you. All right, that's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap. On the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's...
This week, we look at the ugly Canadian. Have Bellingham residents had enough? And the battle of the nerds, Musk versus Zuck. Joining us today is our regular rap panel. Leah Halive is a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. Howdy doody. Howdy doody indeed. Yes, the hip hop. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Favorite. Well, this uh, week uh, on Reddit, uh, there were a lot of complaints uh, directed by Bellingham residents, directed at, sorry, Canadians from Bellingham residents. Mm-hmm. They complained about Canadian shoppers, of course, coming down. Now, some folks did say, look, we appreciate the business, all that. But they also weren't happy that uh, the way Canadians are act- acting, very arrogant and dismissive at times and rude to Bellingham residents. They also talked about the fact that Canadians need to research what they're going to buy and not come down and purchase everything every single day. They also (laughs) don't like the fact that that, is there a need for Canadians to come down and fill up 12 gas cans at Costco during peak hours or to clear their shelves at Trader Joe's before noon. So, oh my God, we are not making friends across the border. (laughs) Leah, let me start with you. How do we fix this? I mean, we're supposed to be the nice ones, right? I mean, that's the thing. I mean, Trader Joe's, what? You know, now I can't go to Trader Joe's. That's out now. I just think, you know, like reading this article, reading actually the comments was very interesting for the fact that these state were not a major city. Like Bellingham, Blaine, they're small, especially Blaine. And like, you don't want to go down there and, and, you know, and pillage everything, take everything from them either just because it's cheaper. You know, they're a small town. You know, it's not like there's a lot coming into their little cities there. We have like lots of, you know, us going down there because it's cheaper, but for them, you know, they live there. So I kind of understand what they're saying. And I, and I just really think that if you're going to load up 12 cans of gasoline, you know, if an American came up here, we would lose our minds if we had to wait behind somebody loading 12 jerry cans, but that wouldn't happen <laughs> with a MAGA hat our on money yeah. and our gas is expensive. So I've seen <laughs> it. I, I've seen it. Like I, I've never taken a jerry really? can down. I've, I've gotten gas. I've dropped my wife off at the Costco and just I'll, I'll gas up, but they'll see somebody pull out like five ten jerry cans that's embarrassing <laughs> oh. what if you get in an accident you know what i mean like are now you that's, allowed to you know kaboom yeah can you are you allowed to transport like gas in that way across the border i mean what the monkey is that about <laughs> there's no subtlety at a costco there's Not no well. subtlety whatsoever. i know but at the u.s canadian border you'd think that maybe somebody's like you know hey dude what have you got in the back there <laughs> oh i've got like half of the costco gas container so yeah i mean <laughs> What do you think about all this? I mean, ultimately, yes, it's a commentary on how highly taxed we are in this country that people have to go across yeah. the border. I guess you can't really, I mean, I don't know how it's you a curtail- comment, You know what it is a commentary on? It's a commentary on the fact that Trader Joe's is not in Canada. I think that's really probably <laughs> yeah. a big thing. Yeah, we need one here. And I don't know if yeah. you guys remember, but about 10, 12 years ago, um, a guy who I actually know, um, he started up, um, and it was in, it was in Kitsilano on Fourth Avenue, Pirate Joe's. Oh, that's right. And it was, oh, you remember yeah. Pirate Joe's? And it was they they brought up all this stuff from Trader Joe's, and they were selling it. And then Trader <laughs> Joe's, like it went on for a couple of years, and then Trader Joe's got an injunction, and it was all that kind of stuff. I've never, okay, big admission here. I've never gone to Trader Joe's. I think Ooh. I told you guys, I I've never been. I like I'm not a big foodie, and I'm I'm not like I mean I, I don't need to have all that. I'm by myself. I don't need all that stuff in the house. So it, to me, I'd be I'd, I'd buy it and watch all the expiry dates happen. Right? It would just mm-hmm. be a, <laughs> yeah. a big waste of time. But I did cross the border a couple of weeks ago, as I'm sure I told you guys, first time since like 2019 to buy uh, 
Powerball tickets with a friend who wanted to go across the border. And we went to Linden and it, I mean, it, there was some Canadian cars down there, but I, I remember we went into the gro- one of the grocery stores because we weren't sure where we could actually purchase the, the tickets. And I just walked up to the cashier and Cash said, station. first of all, I'd, I'd like to apologize. I'm Canadian, so I don't know what I'm talking about. And she just laughed and I said, I'm looking for the lottery tickets. I'm not. And But I, that's kind of my default. Like you we apologized ended up, I, I, too right oh, away. Yeah, they knew you were absolutely. Canadian. I'm sorry. And, and, then, <laughs> and then, of course, went into like we went, decided we were in a hurry. We we're just going to like go in and get something from Burger King for lunch. And they had 17 different flavors of Coca-Cola. And I was I was saying to them, OK, this you know, I feel like I'm like a foreigner from another world, not just the country next door, because how can you have this many flavors of Coca-Cola? Yeah. I mean, but but I think that's the thing is because we're, we're a country of just under 40 million people. They've got nine times as many people. So there's just probably nine times as many products to choose from. And when you've got a limited resource here in Canada, we go to the States to buy stuff. But I will say, Canadians, come on. Like, we are nice people. Do not act uh, like a jackass across the border. It's not cool. You're looking bad on us. And I will hunt you down and kill you for it. But I don't think it's going to get any better because our our carbon tax, which uh, shows up at the the pump, goes up, is going to be going up every year until 2030, two or three cents at a time. So every year we're going to be paying more, which means more people hitting the Costco would even more. With even more Gary Kens. I don't have, like, I don't have, uh, I don't have um, Nexus. So for me, I mean, you know, it's it's a question of time and and how valuable my time is, right? I mean, I'm not going to line up and go for three hours. Yeah, exactly. To get three hours to go down there. No, exactly. To save like 20 bucks or 30 bucks on a tank of gas. To me, that's worth like, okay, well, that's a loss leader. Let's end yeah, the segment. It, it, let's end the segment with this one quote from a, a Bellingham resident. "Quote: In defense of Canadians, they live in a hellish, godforsaken wasteland reminiscent of Mad Max. I've been, I've never what? been there or wanted and to risk my life crossing the border. But I presume what passes for a civilization <laughs> is an utter disaster, since they must travel to another country to purchase the very necessities needed for survival. Do they Ouch. think they're bordering Syria? What is going Mad on Mad with Mad. these people? <laughs> Elon Musk tweeted out that he is in talks with Italy's government." about hosting his proposed cage fight with Mark Zuckerberg and get this at a historic site in the country Italy has already said the Coliseum is off off the books you can't do that but they are looking at other uh, potential sites Uh, Musk posted on Twitter that the fight would be managed by his and Zuckerberg's charitable donation not the Mm -hmm. UFC and all proceeds would go to military veteran organizations why am I laughing as I'm reading this I I don't know I, and I, I apologize to all the vets out there. Like literally, this is the last kind of this is the last way they want to see money. Yeah, know, really. exactly. <laughs> Leah, so the question what to both of you: Musk versus Zuckerberg. <laughs> who oh, no, who I, would win, Leah? Let me let me go to you first. Oh, if you yeah. had to bet, if you're a betting woman, now where now where would you place um, the bet here? Yeah, I do like to bet. This one's an interesting one because when I look at Mark Zuckerberg, he gives me the creepy, touchy roommate vibe. Uh-huh. I think that like his stare, like he stares right, but he's gotten in shape. I don't know yes. if you've seen, but he's like got a six pack. He's got it going on. And then you look at Elon Musk, and I mean. I mean, he's got a dad bod or something. I don't know what's going on there, but he's very wiry. But I think he'd take the creepy Zuckerberg. I just think so. I just think he would overpower him. Because he'd sit on him. I can't believe I'm saying this. I really don't like either of them. 
he'd sit on him. There you go. He'd shoot him to space or something. But I just think like at least it's going to veterans and they can make something out of it. But I, I just can't do these two at all. Like I'm gonna have to watch this. I just have to because it's like, it's, it's because you're it's hate watching. You're actually yeah. hate watching, right? It's exactly. it's hate watching. It I is. mean, I think the, the the winner here is the referee because I mean, honestly, like you know, you can <laughs> just punish them inadvertently for whatever and go oh. to your court. I mean, really, what a pair of losers. Seriously. <laughs> but if you had you've to, got if, so if, much money, you're both billionaires. You're going to do a charity <laughs> boxing match to give money to charities? Just give money to charities, you giant jackass. Exactly. I mean, but they want to put it on the pretend Twitter now. That's why. They want to stream on the, it. Oh, X. Oh, that's <laughs> right. right. That'll X. do it. But who would, if you had to put money, Sarah, if you, if you, if you took the 20 bucks you saved from getting <laughs> gas at Costco uh, with all the jerry cans, who would you put it on? Musk or, uh, or, uh, or Zuckerberg? Uh, the funny thing is I, I can see them just like running around in circles, like, you know, because it'll <laughs> be like each facing other. each other because, you know, <laughs> and so in that case, I'd actually put my money on Zuckerberg. I think he's more wiry mm-hmm. and Elon yeah. is kind of like a giant flaccid idiot. Dope. Um, so, you know, just I, I just see him getting like kicked in the shins and falling and then that's kind of like the end of it. <laughs> kicked in I the mean, shins? No, I would. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah, yeah. stepped <laughs> on a toe and falls down. I, yeah. I, I was thinking earlier today, who would you put money on? And I think I agree with both of you. I would put money on Mark uh, Zuckerberg, yeah, Zuckerberg because Elon Musk He's really. Training. Elon Musk has a body that looks like a wet Nerf ball, right? Nerf football. <laughs> He's like a box. He looks like he's boxed with a head on him. Like that's what he looks like, right? You, you just you just want to say to middle-aged white men, just stop it. Just, just stop it. it. Just stop don't. it now. Just, you know, and, and maybe like get a better mirror and, and take a hard look in it and say to yourself, do I need to let the world see this? Is there, is there any, re- I mean, the fact that it, this is even a thing, the fact that it like a, a challenge between the two of them, these two bloviated jackasses has come to like, oh, now we're going to stage it in Italy and we're going to, we're going to raise, seriously, yeah, why Italy? both of you shut your pie holes and write a big check. And call it a day. That's they have it. nothing better to do, Sarah. That's all. They have oh. nothing better to do. They probably have oh, a, what a pair of ass hats. I know. That's all I can say. They have a combined net worth, probably about two hundred billion dollars. Just put I that. Know. It's just the BC well, government has about billion. fifty-five and billion. That's that's, like that's change for them, right? <laughs> Instead of making a debacle, speckle. Yeah. So <laughs> they're they're fundraising <laughs> off of the rest of us. So yeah. we. So they will donate that money to veterans, and they and and that'll be the thing is they'll get the tax write off of it. And 100%. we, the suckers, yeah. So this is, it's like, seriously, you yeah. two morons, cut a check and go away. Go away. Like, yeah. Go away. Ladies, we've run out of time. Leah, Sarah, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, so much. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. <laughs> you guys too. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.